in the in the political priesthoods of various power structures sought control through asserting dominance on the basis of exclusivity of access to the divine and it sought to to dominate or stamp out all the things that might undermine that agenda of control and that means the feminine the natural the mystical which just means the pursuit of, of direct personal experience of the divine rather than having to go through some mediator Welcome to Holy Heretics from the Sophia Society. We are your hosts, Melanie and Gary Allen. And today we're delighted to have Father Brendan E. Williams with us. And I must say I'm fairly biased since Father Brendan is not only a dear friend of mine, but a spiritual mentor. Uh, He holds an undergraduate degree in literary theory and folklore and terminal degrees in poetry and theology. And he's currently a candidate for the PhD in religion. He is a priest in the Episcopal Church and a fully vowed monastic. Father Brendan is a practitioner of mystical theology, and he works in private practice as a traditional healer, a spiritual director and teacher, and he currently resides here with us in Colorado Springs. And his new book, Seeds from the Wild Verge, is a poetic and insightful look at contemporary Western culture, and in particular, a a pretty scathing critique of the Western church. It offers a contemplative and mystical road back to personal wholeness and spiritual transformation. And when I read it, it not only provided me language for what's kind of wrong with the church, it also showed me a new way forward. So, Father Brendan, welcome. We're glad that you're with us. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you guys. Yes, Father Brendan, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, One of the things that I find most fascinating about you is that although you have led a monastic life for so many years, you actually didn't grow up in the church or even in Christianity, um, which I think gives you a new, a unique perspective on spirituality uh, and Christianity as well. So how did you come to faith and how has that journey shaped the way you embody your spirituality? Yeah, so I'll, I'll take the phrase coming to faith in, the, in a broad sense here and um, say that the spiritual journey began for me at, at a young age and, and really started with the pursuit of my own ancestral Gaelic and Welsh traditions. So from about age 12, I had this passionate interest in, in what my ancestral inheritance might be in a spiritual sense, especially. And and then shortly thereafter, I got involved in meditation practices and in studying monastic spiritualities of different traditions. And so from the start, I, I was really drawn to the idea of a fully embodied, uh, robust, ascetical approach to the spiritual journey. And we might also describe that as a kind of uncompromising approach that takes the spiritual endeavor more seriously than anything else and and privileges it above every other concern which is one way actually of of talking about monasticism in general and and that was all present in me somehow from the beginning but my monastic explorations really started 
not in Christianity, but in Hinduism and Buddhism, which is something that I've been very grateful for over the years, because I feel that in that I got this, this non-Western perspective from the outset. And, mm. and I got that perspective in an immersive, experiential way. Um, so that when I eventually found my way into Catholic Christian tradition, initially in Eastern Orthodoxy, the whole thing was sort of nested in a broader perspective. And so a lot of the common hangups and delusions about Christianity that so many folks get saddled with in the West were more or less automatically distilled away from me. And, you know, I, I often work with people now in the context of teaching or providing spiritual direction on shedding those sorts of hangups so that they mm -hmm. can come to see the real heart of Christian tradition as I've come to know and experience it. And, and the real aim and purpose of religion in general, I would say. And so having that broader, maybe more nuanced background and perspective has been a huge help in my work with others. And, and it's definitely been a key element of my own vocational unfoldment. And it, and it colors my theology and my teaching and writing and my spirituality, um, particularly in the sense that I never, I never really had an interest in what we might call ordinary Christian religiosity. Mm. For me, it was sort of all or nothing from the outset. And, and that might be just my temperament or perhaps something that arose in me organically as a result of my earliest mystical experiences. But I've always had that conviction. And so um, as a result, I've had very little patience, I would say, for, for kind of the bland or lukewarm modes of religion that that most people in the west today in my view take for granted and and assume as normative so i mentioned this um at the very beginning but your book seeds from the wild verge is an incredibly insightful look not only into western culture at large but also in into the church and as you said some of those ways in which we've gone wrong and and in it you describe um, and really provide language for some of the some of the ills. You call it a dominator religion that has infected a Western Christianity. Can you talk about that phrase, dominator religion, and in particular some of the components uh, that make it up and why it's so toxic for us? Sure. Yeah. So so that term uh, dominator, whether it's applied to religion or culture more broadly. Uh, comes out of cultural anthropology, and particularly from the scholar uh, Rian Eisler. And it basically refers to a sociocultural style that's characterized by authoritarian dynamics, and usually by gender dominance and high levels of fear or anxiety that are typically related to cultural narratives, which are often myths. So stories that deeply condition individuals in the society to be in a place of repression or a position of being dominated, of having their mm. spiritual sovereignty stripped from them to one degree or another and under this fear-based assumption that 
if they don't submit, if they don't follow the rules as given by the authorities, then something even worse will happen to them, right? They'll be punished by some god or another, uh, or, or they'll burn in hell for eternity or what have you. So mm. one, one of the main problems with this kind of worldview and this sort of sociocultural style, I think, um, in addition to its inherent violence, because that has to be uh, spoken to right off the bat, and, and that uh, obviously um, makes it a, a highly problematical approach to culture and society and religion. But in addition to that, as I posit in the book, it, it necessarily results in what we might call for simplicity's sake, reductionism. And that can be either religious or secular. And, and in religion, that usually ends up looking like fundamentalism, which is the opposite of what we could call a healthy pluralism. And that, to me, is among the greatest dangers in this uh, dominator cultural style. And, and we can see the effects of that, I think, in the dominant culture around us today. Right? It, it's, it, it's a sort of a, a non-culture, as I often call it in, in, in North America, but it's, it's a cultural style that's in perpetual erosion in a way. And in the destruction that it does to the planet and to non-human species, we see those underlying dynamics of repression, of reductionism, and of violence. And in my view, the, the reductionism comes not just with Descartes and Newton and, and all those old boys, but, but it also <laughs> comes first and foremost with, with an Abrahamic mythos that hmm. in, the, in the political priesthoods of various power structures sought control through asserting dominance on the basis of exclusivity of access to the divine. Mm. And it sought to, to dominate or stamp out all the things that might undermine that agenda of control. And that means the feminine, the natural, the mystical, which just means the pursuit of, of direct personal experience of the divine rather than having to go through some mediator. Right. So all those things um, are, are undermined in that agenda of control. So the dominator agenda is, is often written into the foundational myths themselves in a cultural religious context that expresses this dominator style. And, and this becomes particularly problematic when the myths are misappropriated in some fashion or when their latent agendas are deliberately channeled for political ends by subsequent institutions and power structures, which, which is what we see having historically taken place um, in Christianity with relationship to Judaism before it. Um, so we can think maybe for a moment uh, about the Garden of Eden myth, because I think that's a, that's a perfect example here. It essentially says, in its most uh, common readings at least, that the feminine is the problem, and also the serpent, the animal, is the problem. And the <laughs> serpent represents, in, in a more or less a, a universal archaic symbology, 
um, which we find distributed perennially throughout the world. It represents the wisdom of the earth herself, the knowledge of the foretime or the, the dawn time of the ancestors and of the healing and transformational qualities of certain plants also, right? These, this imagery of mm. the tree, the fruit, it's not incidental or accidental. So everything that comes along with, with a more naturally integrated or untamed or, or wild, we might say in, in the positive sense of that term, experience of religious truth, a full illumined spiritual knowledge or wisdom within this vast ecology of souls that we call mother nature uh all of that is is basically made uh the perpetrator right hmm. so so it, it gets demonized and then then yahweh himself is is made by these biblical authors to command a certain mode of obedience in fact again and again in different ways right so, for example, the, the, the outright domination of the earth and of other people groups, which includes genocide and slavery and all the other horrors that we're all too familiar with. So this, this mm. kind of uh, thinking is dominator thinking. And it's, it's infested mm. even, even the bedrock of the foundational mythos in, in the Abrahamic religions. And uh, of course, this is the kind of thing that as Christians should seem uh, especially problematic to us, right? Because it's utterly contrary to what Christ brings into the world and advocates for. Can in, you, in, can you explain mm -hmm. why we don't see it as problematic or at least the vast majority of Christians in America don't recognize it or don't see it as problematic? Mm -hmm. I think it's just conditioning. Mm. Right. Um, it's it's many generations of acceptance from these authoritarian sources and these these sources of power, we might say, in a general sense, um, that has been handed on in a fairly unquestioning way, generation after generation, and has evolved in different ways, too. I mean, I think it gets worse in the Protestant Reformation in, in many respects. But it's been handed down, and so therefore it's taken for granted. It's just assumed as normative and right and true, mm -hmm. you know. And and I think another way into that question is thinking about um, the kinds of religious ideologies that this type of worldview breeds. And 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 that 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 a dominator style of culture and religion in general breeds. Um, one of those I I think is Gnosticism, capital G, <laughs> Gnosticism as a particular uh, ethos and movement within um, pre-Christian tradition and early Christian tradition, and and this is what I would usually call a world-denying ethos. So it it. it rejects creation as somehow evil or fallen and irredeemable mm. and thus sets up the um the the aim as an escape out of this world of creation and and human experience that we mm. generally inhabit by way of some kind of um 
in the case of institutional uh, Christianity and 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 the the sort of cryptic expressions of Gnosticism in that context, it comes by way of a priesthood, which possesses the the uh, the key, right? Um, like think about the image of Saint Peter holding the key. Yeah. So so there's um, this is a this is a perfect ideational framework for male dominant power structures to seize mm-hmm. and to maintain authority and to push their own agendas. And eventually it gives rise to rationalism, scientism, and all of that, which comes at the expense of the mythic, the poetic, the natural, what I would consider to be the fully human, the embodied um, whole experience of being human. It comes at the expense of being able and equipped to experience what it means to be alive as an integral part of the whole of creation suffused with the divine reality. And so so this all seems to me to be the central cause of our collective alienation and our individual alienation by extension. Hmm. And that means an alienation from our own deepest nature, as well as from the natural world at large, which we then come to pretend or believe we somehow stand apart from and and we see as mere materiality. So so we get a kind of Mm. worldview that asserts that not every creature is ensouled or every creature is made in the divine image, as many other worldviews would affirm or, or, or take for granted. But rather, we get all creatures except the rationalistic male human creature are essentially meaningless, right? They're they're without <laughs> spiritual sovereignty, and that, of course, makes it very easy to exploit and destroy right. life. All the other creatures who don't fall into that narrow category. So, so I think this has brought about our alienation from God, from from divine love, from authentic and adequately aware, connected, and incarnational models of religious expression. And it's catapulted us into this corrosive Gnostic or crypto-Gnostic style of doing religion. And that's, that's particularly expressed, in my understanding, in the Protestant groups and, and in things contemporarily like evangelicalism, um, where, where that sort of automatic assumed divide between ourselves and the created world around us um, kind of rules the day and dictates perhaps unconsciously for many folks but it dictates much of what people think and feel and do and and what they say about christianity and so i think to go back to your question melanie when when that kind of ideology has become so systematized and so ingrained that it's not even questioned anymore. And then you go on century after century that way, um, people just lose sight of what, of what came before. They don't even mm. realize that there is any other way. That's just, they just assume, well, this is the way, this is Christianity or this is what have you. Right? No, mm. absolutely. I mean, I would say that is how I've felt over the last few years in starting to question and doubt and even deconstruct some of what I was taught it was like oh I didn't even know I could question that I didn't even know 
there was a different way of viewing the world or viewing Christianity or understanding God. I mean, it was just such a like, wait, this isn't the gospel true. But, you know, I, it's, it's like you said, <laughs> mm-hmm. it's so ingrained. Um, and one of the things you kind of alluded to, but uh, so you said um, you talked about the Bible, the biblical writers um, kind of writing Yahweh in the way that they perceived Yahweh to be, um, which I think made my uh, evangelical formal, former self cringe uh, because mm-hmm. you're saying, or at least it seems like you're saying that there was a human perspective put on the text um, and the human perspective of God put on the text, which goes fully against the idea of biblical literalism. Um, and so I guess my question here is like, how have we as Westerners, as especially 21st century Americans, uh, Protestant Americans, at least for my case, um, how have we misread or misunderstood the Bible? And how do we change now our relationship with this ancient and complicated and nuanced text that we, that we have centered Christianity around? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, firstly, I think it's it's precisely a literalist understanding of religious text that affords those in positions of power and authority who are the ones who define the standard or the acceptable hermeneutical approach to the text. It affords them the ability to maintain power and, and control the thinking and movement of the people whose spiritual care has been unfortunately entrusted to them right so, mm. so so that seeing through that kind of um uh illusion or seeing through that mirage i think is really critical in terms of getting us a, a strong hold on what's really going on with these kinds of texts and how they've been used misappropriated etc over the centuries um i think i mean for me as a scholar it's it's a given that there is human agency uh, throughout scripture. That's just a simple objective fact. Um, And I understand (laughs) that that's not true for many people. So I'm not, I don't, I don't say that flippantly. I'm just, I'm just sharing that that's my own conviction, which I've uh, come to over, you know, many years of, of study and exploration and spiritual experience. But, but I would say that, um the it's the mythic dimensions that are within these kinds of texts that are actually the most potent and potentially transformative elements that we can glean from them and there's a, there's a common misunderstanding about let's say let's just take the gospel texts for a, for a moment as as an exemplar that set of texts there's a common misunderstanding that that particular set of texts that's in the canon and there are of course many gospel texts that didn't make it into the canon by a series of uh, political and historical circumstances which is another conversation but but for the time (laughs) being let's just say that those those four principal canonical gospel texts 
are generally understood to be like historical biographies about the person of Jesus of Nazareth, right? Right. But the problem is that um, that genre, as we understand it today, didn't exist in the ancient world at that time. So we 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 unknowingly enforce our own rationalistic, um, historically motivated and literalist interpretation uh, or interpretive lens, we might say, onto these these uh, authors and their texts from two thousand years ago, and it doesn't work well to do that. It it sort of doesn't wash at, at the end of the day, we might say. And, and so this is why there's so much dissonance when people, especially people who grew up in more fundamentalist contexts, they start studying biblical scholarship and they find, oh my God, there's, there's a profound dissonance here. None of this reconciles to itself, let alone hmm. reconciling to the view I was given, right? <laughs> um, so, so, so that then I, I, I think and hope uh, leads somebody who's who takes these things seriously into a different lens for reading these texts if we step away from the idea that these are these are god-breathed documents that fell perfectly from the sky number one and number two that they are meant to describe to us some kind of literalistic history of of things that actually took place on on the earth uh, at such and such a date, whatever it happens to be, um, if we disabuse ourselves of those two things, then we're free to enter the expansiveness that actually exists in the text, underlying all of our unhelpful assumptions, which are which are culturally constructed or culturally constituted. Right? We take the, our assumptions about the text we take for granted because they're Again, to go back to the same theme, they're all we've known. They're what we've been taught, what we were taught when we came up in Christianity, right, or, or Judaism, or whatever the case might be. Um, so, so once we can come to terms with that fact and say, "Oh, this is only a perspective; it's not the perspective," then we're free to move underneath that toward the foundation of what I believe the texts have to offer us, which is to be found in this more mythic, um, allegorical milieu. And it, it, mm. it's, it's important also to note here that this, the literalist mode of, of interpretation of any religious text is not common in the world in terms of ancient sacred texts. It's really an mm. aberration. And it's an aberration that's quite specific I won't say it's exclusive to, but nearly perhaps exclusive to and very specific to the Abrahamic approach to sacred text. So it's more or less unique in the world and not in a good way, in my opinion, not in a healthy <laughs> way. Right. And so generally what you have in cultures where um, where very ancient sacred texts have been written, let's say in in the um, in the vast cultural milieu of India. Right within within Hinduism, we might say more uh, a little bit more narrowly. There's there's generally an a, a kind of ambient understanding in a given cultural and religious context, wherein folks basically grasp the fact that 
when you're dealing with sacred texts, you're dealing in the realm of the mythic. You're operating in what I call mythic time, not literal historical time. So, so, so to close down a sacred mythic text and render it as a mere literal history is actually to completely denude the faith tradition it represents and the teachings it espouses. Because really what's significant are the teachings, right? It's, it's what can we embody ourselves? What can we take from this as inspiration for how to live, to practically put on, to use St. Paul's phrase, and, and, and transform our lives? And that's that's really where the the well, you rubber know, meets the road. I want to kind of add to that too, because um, that's been a, a huge shift for me. I think most of us grew up in the church, and we were told that you know everything, in particular, in the Gospels, was historical fact and historical reality. And so, our task was to go and defend that um, at all costs and to prove that mm-hmm. this particular event happened on this day and in this year. And, um, I, you know, one of the things that has been very freeing for me is basically to come to the text and say, I think all of this is true, and some of it actually happened. You know, and, and to be able to, to remove yourself from trying to prove a, a historical reality and look at a deeper, uh, the deeper meaning of the text, which is, you know, what is the hidden truth here that is universal for all time, regardless of whether this is metaphor or analogy or, you know, a, a simple uh, myth, if you will. And, and maybe even just to debunk the fact that when we say the word myth, we automatically think that something is not true because we've linked truth with historical reality. And I, I think there's just a, a, a beautiful way to realize that myth is bigger than maybe what we've even you know thought it to be so is that is that, am i on to something in kind of thinking that absolutely yeah that, i think that's well said because we we assume that truth means factuality right but 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 in fact they're quite distinct from a philosophical perspective truth is a much larger and more, as you said, universal concept than fact. Hmm. So, so to talk merely a, a, about what is factually true, that puts us squarely in the realm of science, and that's what science should do. That's the job of science. But it really doesn't suit the realm of religion very well. And, and so, so we have to think about truth in this larger sense. And, and talking about myth, as not merely myth, but as a, a, a profound and powerful transmission that comes through cultural and epigenetic and narrative lines down to us and transmits something that is far beyond the realm of fact. Mm. It, it has a resonance of truth, we might say capital T truth, that is, that is, um, transcendent of that realm of sort of ordinarily measurable experiences or outward material experiences. And, you know, one thing I like to mention to folks too around this is that in a Christian environment, it should be noted that this isn't a newfangled idea, right? This isn't uh, some sort of um, 
new age concept or or the even the product of historical uh, critical scholarship it's actually a very ancient idea in fact it has a, a very early early precedent in christianity itself um particularly in the alexandrian school which i personally as a theologian very much align with and that alexandrian school which included folks like um saint clement saint origen saint athanasius um they they essentially taught having been influenced by uh philo of alexandria who was a jewish uh, mystical thinker theologian uh, prolific author uh, before the dawn of christianity they they essentially took this uh, allegorical and metaphorical approach to scripture for granted i mean th th in their minds this is the only legitimate way to look ultimately at scripture hmm. and so origin in particular had this idea that that um sacred text can be viewed as a um a kind of almond shaped uh object if you will and it has three layers to it there's an outer husk which is the literal historical layer and when you want to eat an almond you pull it off the tree that outer husk that's the first thing to go you just shed that right that's useless <laughs> that the only thing you can do with that is 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 use it for kindling or something you know <laughs> or, or 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 fertilizer or whatever compost it you know um then the next inner layer is slightly more useful but still not the real meat that you want and that's the moral layer so in other words it's the layer which says here's what you should do and what you shouldn't do here's how you should basically live your life in an outward sense particularly like how you engage with other people you know how you understand ethics those kinds of things that's useful for sure but it's still not the real heart of the matter it's not the inner kernel that will really feed our souls the 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 third and final layer is that that inner meat, which is the spiritual meaning. And that is the, the layer at which we can access what the text that we're dealing with in, in any given moment, assuming it's a, a sacred text, the text that we're dealing with is saying to us about our particular spiritual journey through metaphor, through allegory, and through myth. So this this approach I think is really crucial and it's crucial for people to understand that this is not only does it go back to the very beginnings of Christianity it's actually pre-Christian too in 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 the in terms of the Abrahamic tradition right it goes back into Judaism before Christianity even came about but right from the start of the church in Alexandria which is very early on um this idea is being um, promulgated and there was a competing idea which which was linked more to syria and and that part of the world um which said that the the literal historical is actually the one that we should be principally looking to and unfortunately over the centuries that's the idea that won out right hmm. and and hmm. we we can sort of think about these things also like like competing narratives that come from different cultural milieus um the the allegorical mode and the metaphoric mode really comes largely out of a hellenistic um 
cultural expression and a Hellenistic approach to sacred texts and hermeneutics and to mythology. And that had many thousands of years of refinement and, um, and exploration as we're all familiar with, you know, the great thinkers of, of uh, the classical Greek world that really influenced these early Christians in Alexandria. Whereas these other folks um, were perhaps coming from a perspective that was more influenced by um, near, near Eastern assumptions about text and those kinds of things, which weren't really very compatible with this more Hellenistic understanding. And actually, interestingly enough, they weren't, they weren't compatible with, I think, with ancient Egyptian uh, understanding either, which met with the Hellenistic understanding, of course, in the um, Alexandrian cultural and intellectual environment, and in that period, the, the period of Hellenistic Egypt. So, so there's this complex interchange of, of narratives and ideas and approaches, and, and they're, they're kind of competing throughout the, the early centuries of Christianity. And when the dust settles, um, most people, not exclusively, but most people in the church are left with this rather, I think, compromised um, surface level approach. Now, that is, is challenged and, and problematized and um, redressed, et cetera, throughout the centuries, particularly by mystical theologians and monastic voices, et cetera. But then when you get to the Protestant Reformation, it all kind of comes to a head where you're by that point, um, you're really locked once for all in this in this literalistic reductionistic approach to the thing. And, mm. and I think that's a large part of how we got into the collective disaster that we're <laughs> currently in. <laughs> so this is somewhat paradigm um, altering for a lot of us who as I said earlier, believed that the main point of Christianity was about um, being able to defend historical truth. And you seem to be pointing toward a future of faith that is much broader than that, that's not just belief-centered, but also experiential. And in particular, I've heard you quote Jesuit priest and theologian Karl Rahner to describe the change that needs to take place in the way we view faith. Um, the, the quote from Rahner is, in the days ahead, you Christians will either be a mystic or nothing at all. What does it mean to be a mystic Christian? And how might Christian mysticism change the way we even view the foundations of our faith? Yeah, so the notion that Christians of the future will either be mystics or will not exist at all um, is, is really central for me. And it's something I think I, I kind of knew intuitively the moment I stepped into Christian tradition as an adult convert in my early twenties. And it's, it's been a perennial part of my thinking and, and my ministry ever since. So, so when I eventually came across that, that quote by Rahner, I was, I was, um, I felt deeply resonant with it. And in terms of what it means to be a mystic, I personally define mysticism simply as an experiential epistemology. So in other words, it's, it's a way to seek truth 
that privileges direct experience, epistemology being the, the, the study or exploration of how we know what we know or mm. what we think we know. Right? So, so an experiential epistemology just means one that privileges direct experience over rational measurement or study. And that's really all it is. That's all mysticism is, in my view. So, so in terms of what that implies in uh, a practical way for today's world and for Christianity going forward, uh, to my thinking, it, it implies an approach, not just to Christianity, but to religion in general, that necessitates uh, some committed work, some real striving, some legitimate self-sacrifice. And that's, of course, not something that um, people in our materialistic, consumeristic, convenience-based society like to hear, but I think it's true nonetheless. So th there's, this is a perennial truth, I think, that, that we've known from the beginning of culture and religious experience themselves, which is that there has to be a death in order for there to be a new birth. There has to be shedding in order for new life to come forth. And, and this is precisely what the Christian mythos at its core relays to us so elegantly. And, and that means something much more radical than, than what we're used to in terms of church going and church affiliation. It really means, I think, ultimately devoting one's whole life to that experiential epistemological pursuit, to the uncompromising pursuit of truth, through direct experience and framing one's whole life around that with spiritual practices and techniques that can actually alter our consciousness to the extent that we might actually be able to glimpse something deeper than what our normative perception in this materialistic human-made world affords. And that's what, in my view, the life of, of a contemporary Christian mystic would have to consist of and and so i think that that uh, places us in a position of um, immense responsibility wherein we must confront the reality that if we want to as Rahner says perpetuate the heart and depth and the real life-giving aspects of christian tradition then we must place ourselves in this position where we're vulnerable to direct experience and not just vulnerable to it, in fact, but where we're actively seeking it, direct experience of the divine. And, and, and that's, hmm. that will put us squarely on, on the path, I think. Hmm. It's hmm. almost like we've become so accustomed to secondhand religion that we've just accepted what people have told us as opposed to really doing the hard work ourselves to go after um, experiencing and knowing and relating to the divine personally, and uh, as opposed to just accepting what somebody else has told us about God, which I think would probably change a lot of things if we actually had a direct experience with the divine, as opposed to just believing what our elders or pastors have maybe told us about who the divine is. So uh, maybe this just gets us to um, this overly simplistic question, but what, what is the point then? Um, what, what then is the end goal of Christianity and how do we get there? 
Well, to put it simply, the point is to become a saint. <laughs> so to, to uh, as we would say in, in um, traditional theological speak, to attain to theosis, which literally means divinization or deification. Um, and it's often today rendered as union with God, uh, which is perhaps a little more uh, palatable for mm. contemporary thinkers. <laughs> but um, that's the ultimate aim of Christianity, period. And, mm. and I think anybody who, who doesn't understand that just doesn't have an adequate understanding of Christianity. So, so that's the goal. And um, I'll maybe mention there's a, there's a great um, little anecdote from uh, Thomas Merton's autobiography, The Seven Story Mountain, that I, that I love to reference around this. And it's, it comes after Merton has graduated from Columbia and he's, he's just converted to Roman Catholicism. And he's trying to discern what to do next with his life. And he's walking in New York City with his best friend, who was Robert Lax, who was, by the way, a profound mystic and poet in his own right. Uh, Lax asks him what he plans to do. And Merton says, I'm paraphrasing here, well, I don't know, but I guess I, I want to become a better Catholic. And then Lax turns to him and says, no, 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 no. That's, that's the wrong approach altogether. That's not going to cut it at all. <laughs> what, you, what you should say is, I want to become a saint. And then Merton you know, goes through this sort of round of internal questioning, and he's saying, how in the world do you expect me to become a saint? Um, and he describes that there's this sort of internal dissonance around that very notion. How could I become a saint? And then Lax gives this beautiful little teaching. He says, all that's really necessary to be a saint is to want to be one. Don't you believe that God will make you what he created you to be mm. if, if you will consent to let him do it? And so all you have to do is to truly desire it. And that's the key there, mm. right? To truly desire it, to mm. long for it. And then you will shape your life accordingly. So that's it, mm. in my view. It's to, the, the, the aim is to become a saint, nothing less. And so to attain to true wisdom, illumination, or again, theosis. And, and, and to truly long for that utter transformation in and into Christ, wherein the false self, the egoic self, disappears. And we find in its place the divine image in which we were made. We find there the, the love and the communitas in and for which we were all created. And that's, in my view, true atonement or at one which is literally what that word means. Mm. Moving into existential union with both creation and creator. And in that radiant landscape of experience, undergoing our own transfiguration, as it were, and ultimately our own resurrection. Mm. And then from there, and only from there, can we do any true lasting good for the rest of the human-made world in all of its brokenness. Mm. And so that, to me, is, is the only authentic aim of Christianity. Mm. And, and, and I would say that we're so used to settling for less that this sounds like a radical notion, but actually 
it's quite a deep-rooted notion in Christianity that nothing less than that pursuit of sainthood will ever suffice. Well, I guess that's a great way to segue into our last question. Uh, This is the question that we ask everybody because we all need more hope. So when you look at the future of faith and where we're headed, what gives you hope? More than anything right now, I see hope in the upending of normalcy, of our assumed comfortable ways of doing things. And I think that the, uh, the jig is coming to a close on, on much of the cultural and religious tomfoolery that's gone <laughs> on for so long. And, and in my view, it's coming to a close uh, not a moment too soon. And, and that means I think that the playing field is much more open. And, and we're called to be creative and courageous, I think, in, in how we approach this new landscape, how we shape it, how we co-create what comes next, and how we curate our lives going forward, not just in the church, but in the world at large. And I, I tend to be some, somewhat cynical about um, people's willpower and ability to do what needs to be done and on a collective level. But I think this, this opportunity, this new field of experience that could grow up through the ashes of all these dominator power structures that are beginning to lose their foothold and that are beginning to crumble, to me, there's immense hope in that. And, and I always say, I'm not at all optimistic, but I'm profoundly hopeful. <laughs> and if, if there's anything we know, I think, from the Christian witness, it's that love prevails in the end. The divine pursuit of self-revelation, of beauty and wisdom and compassion and truth goes on forever. No matter what idiotic things we might do to spoil <laughs> our little sandbox down here right <laughs> i i think it was uh, shakespeare who who wrote truth will out mm. and the river of being flows ever onward there's nothing we can do to dam up that river and so i think that the 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 vista is expanding the landscape that we can potentially inhabit is now open more broadly than it's been in a really long time. And, and I take comfort in that. Hmm. That's encouraging for me as well. Okay. So we actually want to do one last thing with you, something fun. Um, Mm -hmm. We would just like to ask you a few rapid fire questions uh, (laughs) if that's okay. So just some questions where you answer as quickly as possible and Mm -hmm. um, just say the first thing that comes to mind. Sound good? (laughs) <laughs> yes, yes, sounds very dangerous. dangerous. <laughs> but fun, very fun. <laughs> okay, the first question is, is there anything we should have asked but didn't? Uh, no. <laughs> that was too easy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, second question. You want to you your... you do that one again? <laughs> no, 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 it's perfect. Uh, okay, second question, what's your favorite movie of all time? Oh God, um, probably 
the seventh seal. But a close it's a tie. It's this is going to sound really odd, but it's a close tie between the seventh seal and the Big Lebowski. <laughs> Two very different genres. Very different genres. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> All right. Coffee or tea? Tea, 100 percent. Yeah, I knew the answer to that one. <laughs> By the way, that uh, picture of that uh, tea you made on Facebook was looked very tasty the other day. Oh, good. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that was some Himalayan butter tea. Mm, looks good. Okay. Mm. If you could force every Christian in the West to read one book, b- besides your own, of course, um, <laughs> what, what would it be and why? Oh, wow. Um, that's a difficult question. I think it would have to be something out of the uh, early monastic tradition. Maybe um, the little collection that Merton put together called Wisdom of the Desert, which is a little, it's it's a very accessible little collection of sayings from the desert mothers and fathers in the uh, third and well, late third and and mostly fourth centuries uh, at the birth of Christian monasticism in Egypt. And why I think that is utterly crucial is because it presents from the depth of lived experience the kind of transformative spiritual life that we've been talking about today as totally needful for preserving and sustaining a meaningful expression of christianity Hmm. well i'm adding that to my list so (laughs) okay last question do you speak any other languages besides english um i speak a little bit of of gaelic which is scottish gaelic can you say anything that we would know (laughs) like can you that you would know yeah no you're you're not you're probably not going to know any gaelic but i could say a few (laughs) A few phrases like Kimara Hashiv, which is which is just asking how you are. Um or uh, the common response to that is uh Haguma Tapalev, which basically means um eh, I'm fine, that's so so. Thank you. <laughs> that's basically the how it translates. <laughs> and 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 it and this is how this is sort of gives you an insight into into Gaelic culture because or culture is plural um, because uh, we we try not to say anything too directly. Mm. Interesting. Well, hey, this has been an <laughs> and incredible there deep, conversation. There are deep reasons for that, but <laughs> I bet, I bet. Well, this has been an incredible conversation. It's been a deep conversation, and I think for a lot of us. Um, has been an uh, a paradigm changing conversation, in particular to how we view uh, Western Christianity, how we view the Bible in particular, and then how we view what the future of faith actually looks like. So, thanks so much for joining us. And by the way, if people want to follow you, or in particular, grab your book, um, where where do we find you online, Father Brendan? The best place to find me online is just at my personal website, and it's just brendanelliswilliams.com, just my full name spelled out, .com. And there's a link to buy my book there on Amazon, but you can also find the book you know, on Barnes & Noble and wherever else people buy books. But 
there's a link to buy the book on Amazon. There's more writing. Um, if people want to contact me about the possibility of uh, spiritual direction, all that stuff can be found on my website and my blog as well. Perfect. And we'll definitely link to that in our show notes for this episode as well. So if, if you can't find it, check out the show notes. Thank you so much for joining us today, Father Brennan. We really enjoyed this conversation. Likewise. Thank you guys very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Wow. So much to process after that. We hope you learned a lot and were introduced to some new concepts through Father Brendan. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode and head to holyheretics.org for show notes and for all of Father Brendan's information. This episode was produced by the Sophia Society. Music is by Faith and Foxholes and sound engineering is by Joshua Mudge. 